Hello, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Night Sky Podcast. My name is Billy Newman. And I'm Marina Hansen. And we are going to be talking about some of the things in the evening sky and morning sky for the first week of March of 2017. And we had a couple things to catch up on, like uh, some things that had happened, I guess, in the past couple of weeks of February. Let's see, what, what did we miss? Like, um, there was a lunar eclipse. Oh, right. Yeah. I don't think that was really in our, our viewing. Yeah, it, I think it ended up happening uh, for people that would have been out in the Atlantic Ocean and I think uh, for a good bit of the, the eastern seaboard mm-hmm. over here. I think most of the east coast would have seen it. Uh, and then. And what kind of what kind of eclipse was this one? Because it was That's different. It was a different kind than the one that we're going to have. Like we're going to have a total solar eclipse in August. Yeah. But this one was was this one a total solar eclipse? Or well, was this was a not? this was a lunar eclipse. Uh, of just the moon, I think is what it was. Yeah, so it was just the moon being oh, dark okay. on the east coast as the full moon rose up above the horizon. So that's the big difference that it would be for that. And then I think, um, well, it's, yeah, I think it's been the, it might have been only a partial. Maybe that's just what it was for us on the west coast because I think is what I had understood is or maybe what I was most concerned with is what it would look like to me when it came up. But right. I think they were saying that it was going to just be in the penumbra at that point. So uh, I'm sure. So if you're in the right spot, maybe it was a total one. I'm sure that seems to be how it works for the moon most of the time. Is that like some if there is an eclipse somewhere is getting like the total eclipse because it's it's kind of like the Earth's shadow is so big that it's a lot easier for that to cast the moon into darkness for a period of time more than it is just the moon's smaller shadow cast down onto the Earth mm-hmm. like it would be for a solar eclipse. Um, so that's where like the whole earth or the whole half of the hemisphere will see that lunar eclipse, whereas it's more difficult to see the solar eclipse if it's happening during that day. Kind of interesting how that is, but yeah, it was kind of cool. I think uh, I remember, I remember one. Well, actually that was kind of early February that we had it. Yeah. So I was trying to figure that out how that was, but it always does seem that we have the lunar eclipses a little closer to the equinoxes. Have you oh, kind of noticed that a little bit? Yeah, I guess so. Or it seems like thinking it's in back September. on it, it seems like that's about when they seem to happen. Yeah, I seem to remember trying to watch them in September, October, or like February, March, April, a lot of the time. So I, yeah, there's there's still some more mysteries about some of those draconic cycles and like uh, how the eclipse cycle for, for lunar eclipses go. I just don't really know all the intricacies of it, but it seems like that's one of them. Or that's kind of strange, like why the lunar eclipses seem to occur so At often those, in that, yeah, in that yeah, section. Like a few years ago, we had the tetrad, where we had like the yeah. four in a row, and those were all mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, like fall, spring, fall, spring. Right. It's interesting how that goes. But it seems to be like my recollection for a long time. So there's the lunar eclipse. What else was there? There was the exoplanets. We found the exoplanets, like the, the uh, NASA... I guess, announcement that scientists for a long time had discovered and then had been doing more work to verify that they had found, how many planets was it? I think it was seven. Seven, yeah. Or they had already found, they had already found two of them. That was kind of my understanding too, yeah. And then they found five more. Yeah, they found a few others in the system and and I guess they say that a few of them are going to be within that Earth temperature range where it could have liquid water. I I think that they're about Earth size also yeah i was trying to figure out what that meant 
or I guess maybe, yeah, it means that they're Earth size. They probably would have to be about that big. Yeah, it, it's probably true because I was trying to figure if that was in relationship to the size of its sun, which was smaller, but I, but I don't think it is. I think it is the, the mass size of Earth, but I guess it's all closer. Yeah, that was a really sun. interesting part of it, too, is that they're, yeah, I think they're all about the same size, which is Earth size. Wow. And I think that they're really close together. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I had read in the, um, in the, I guess the NASA report of it that they had put out, um, that like if you were standing on one of the planets, yeah, that you could look out and see one of the other planets and it would appear in the sky larger than our moon appears to us. Really? Yeah. Wow. Doesn't that sound crazy? That sounds I can't weird. imagine looking out and just seeing a few planets wind up. Yeah, that, that would big. be so crazy. Just like big planets. So like if you were, if you were a species that like grew, you know, if there were two different cultures on these different oh, planets yeah, and you'd like look out and see them too. before you could communicate or see each yeah. other. Yeah, because like we can, we can make out definition on the moon yeah. with our eyes. Yeah. And you, I was, it had said something about how like you'd be able to make out geographical things yeah or like landmarks and weather. things and you could see the weather you could see stuff. the ocean you could see like big, big hurricanes so wrapping up under the coast or something you know like how strange would that be like you look at it and see yeah. that sort of thing it'd be so easy to get to too you that would be cool too yeah go interstellar right away yeah i wonder how <laughs> i wonder how it would work yeah it'd be cool i think it was 40 light years away or maybe 39 light years away was it tarpist I think Trappist. it's Trappist. Trappist. I think it's one? Trappist one. Trappist one. Was it do you, was it in Aquarius? Or I don't know. I don't uh, really know that part of it. It I was somewhere it distant. Uh yeah. But 40 light years away is really pretty far. There's a lot of stars that are closer than 40 light years. Like I was thinking about Vega is like 26 oh, yeah. light years. Uh I mean there's like like Sirius is only 8 light years. There's like uh Proxima Centauri. It's like pretty close. Uh, that's down in the southern hemisphere. But there's like a handful of stars that are really a lot closer. There was another uh, star that they had found last year that I think, I think it was Proxima Centauri. The closest one to it has a planet that goes around it. Oh. Uh, I don't know if it's as likely to have life or, or be in the Goldilocks zone of a star. But uh, but it was, it was interesting that it had a planet next to it, which is, I think, 4.2 light years from here, which would really take a very long time for one of our conventional spacecraft to travel through space at that speed, but uh, but it'd be really interesting. We could probably, I mean, if it, if there was focus on it, you could do it in the next fifty years, <laughs> maybe uh, as, you know, send something out in that direction. Uh, but it's kind of interesting, though, the the idea that uh, we know that there's like an exoplanet nearby that you could study something about. But that's also tricky too, because we've just, I think, in the last year or two, figured out at least the things we know about just in our solar system, and we've only done that a small amount. Like we've only sent like one probe out to each of the planets. Or more than mm -hmm. one probe, but but not that many. Maybe we won't jump on sending stuff out to other solar systems right away. <laughs> but it's cool though that they've done so much research in exoplanets. It's yeah, it it's really cool. It's interesting. How was you had explained to me a little bit how it works, or like how they they identify that they're there. Yeah, the science of this has evolved a little bit, if I understand right. It was 1995. It's really a, a, a modern science, but before that, they were looking for for the signs of planets going around other stars. But it was really just theoretical. Like it was it was the ideas of Star Trek that had planets around it, but it wasn't really in science understood if there were really planets 
that could go around other stars other than ours. And it wasn't just something we could observe because planets were so, I guess, difficult to observe at those distances. So we had to create really sensitive, uh, complex equipment to, to do analysis of, of a star, I guess, with just big telescopes. I think when we put them up in space, when they were like still enough and able to take like, you know, like really long exposures with the really big mirrors mm-hmm. so they could collect a lot of light from these distant stars. But I guess what they were, they were doing was um, they, would, they would watch the star. This was in the early days. They only had like, the ability to find really specific examples of exoplanets. So that would be anything that was like a small planet, like a small Pluto rock or a Mercury rock going around a big star. It's not going to make much of a big difference, and it would be just hard to detect for us. So the only thing that we could really find were big stars that had really big gas giants like Jupiter-sized gas giants, things that maybe should have just become a double star, like a second small star next to it. But uh, like these really big gas giants that were out just right next to the sun or right next to that star, like somewhere like in Venus's orbit, if we were to imagine like a giant Jupiter-sized gas giant next to the sun, like but so close to the sun. And the reason we could detect those is because they had such a big separate mass that as that planet swung around the sun, its gravitational pull would kind of swing it around. So you could see the planet wobble a little bit as you watch the procession of the planet Okay. and its revolution around so you could its host see, star. So you could see that there must be something else that was affecting its movement. And that's how yeah. they would identify to look for there being something well i think that that was their proof in a lot of ways like uh, there's there's a there's a lot of complexity in the physics and the math that they're using to to say that this is proof i guess it does check out but yeah i think that was the original understanding was that these wobbles in the star had to be caused by some kind of object now i don't know if they've really been optically observed i don't think there's really any kind of technology that allows us to optically see that there are these planets isn't that strange? That is strange. Yeah, it's so interesting being at a point where we have equipment and processes for yeah. being able to know that things are there that we can't see. Yeah, that it's, are it's impossibly based. far away from us to yeah. be able to identify. So far, that's crazy. So yeah, everything that we see online are all artists' renderings of this concept, which right. is always so misleading and confusing because you wonder like they got great pictures of it right away given that we don't even have pictures of Neptune or something. You know, <laughs> yeah. it so it was, yeah, it was just silly. Like sometimes when you think like, huh, really? Like what, or yeah, where do these pictures come from? But so the really, yeah, it's just all instrument based. Like it would be if you were flying in a, a plane in a storm or something like that, a pilot's still supposed to be able to judge and see everything that's happening. But without the aid of actual, the visual, sight. like the optical part of it, they just have to trust that the truth is there because of the, the effects of these instruments. It seems really strange to me. So that's how it was in the in the beginning. I think when they found the first exoplanet was like a really big one going around a, a bigger or a star that they could see the wobble from. Oh, okay. I think it was easy to detect, but it's gotten more refined now over the last twenty years, and so now we're at a point where we can detect what it was that we saw, or the the NASA scientists discovered and then and then published papers on. I guess a couple weeks ago, we now see that we can find small sets and i think this is the first like solar system that's been confirmed or first small small like many small planets earth-sized planets a couple of them being like we said 
in the in the Goldilocks zone mm-hmm. where you could have potential life. And- yeah, liquid water. Something about like liquid water mm-hmm. and and like carbon. I think like we were talking about this morning. Right. Like if you have that, then you can and heat. I guess it's kind of like you can get organic chemistry going that way. I don't really understand how they get started though. <laughs> that's uh that's another podcast, I guess. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's really cool though that they have uh, they have like a, you know another solar system to observe now with seven planets. It's probably going to be a point of research for a long time. But maybe now that they have the sensitivity to discover these things, we're going to see them discover a whole number of other star systems that are out there that have that yeah that have planets itself. yeah that, yeah just solar systems that are out against all these other stars that we've learned about. I'm sure, or I, I imagine there must be. A lot more you know if we found one yeah. other one and we're here i bet there aren't just two yeah that's a really exciting thing about it is that uh is that yeah it was it was wondered for a while if, if really big stars stars with solar mass is much greater than ours if they would even be capable of having stars because like they would, they would suck all the material in originally oh. and they and maybe that might be the case or i'm not i'm not totally sure how the physics work around the different sizes of stars but uh but it might be like that there's a range of size that has more planets or, you know, is more likely to have um, planets stay out of it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe there's a range where it's, it's really big and you wouldn't have planets. I don't know. It's kind of interesting, but, but it's really interesting to see that we're, we're now getting to that stage of what I'd heard before. I think when I was in college, I just taken like the basic astronomy class, but they had talked about how most of the work in astronomy science today the research that's getting paid for is is this is the search for exoplanets which is kind of interesting well you know interesting that, like what it's we're talking about. yeah it seems like a, a pretty fascinating thing to try to discover and learn more about yeah especially with like this one with trappist one um and the plants we found on it like one of the things that we've learned is that a few of them are potentially um a p- potentially planets that could have life yeah it's really which seems it's like something exciting. we would want to learn more about for yeah absolutely so it's just yeah it's a really cool yeah so that and the opportunity that there's other stars yeah it's really fast it's really cool how big is um oh i don't know if you know this <laughs> how <laughs> how big is trappist one compared to our, like our sun do you know i heard a much? little bit about this so it's kind of it's interesting how how everything started so we're humans we live on earth and we've sort of set everything up with the understanding of what's been around us. So mm-hmm. when we say one solar mass, that's the unit for the, the mass of our star. We've just kind of given that oh, as okay. like our sun is one. Okay. What's that compared to other stars as they go out? It's two because it's bigger or it's it, 147, I think, is the biggest one we've observed. Oh, wow. 147 which, which solar one masses. That? I don't know. I think it's that's way out. I don't know if we see it all the time. Oh. But uh yeah, that, yeah, that's a nuts one. Talk about like uh, the main sequence and things that go crazy. On the main <laughs> sequence is those big. Well, that's where you get like crazy black holes. It's like super, super heavy ones. I actually I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so back to to ours. That's one solar mass. I think this one and ours is like a a yellow star. I right. think it's actually a green star. I don't. I've heard that. That didn't really make sense to me all the time. But it's so bright that it kind of blows out our ability to see it, and so it looks yellow. It's been confusing. It didn't really make sense, that explanation to me. seems like a yellow star. But this one is like a brown dwarf star. Oh. Or it's a... 
Oh, I had read. Yeah, I had read something about that. It's like a, it's like a super dwarf or something. Super might not be the right word, but it's super dwarf. <laughs> uh, yeah. I can't remember what it is though. But yeah, it's like, ah, uh, shoot, gotta look at that NASA article again. It was, but yeah, to... it was like a a super dwarf. I heard or some comparison cool. of it and Jupiter, like. 10 times bigger than Jupiter or five times bigger than Jupiter, which is still kind of planet sized or something, you know, yeah. which is a really small star. I mean, like Jupiter is like, and then the sun is huge next to it. Um, but, but yeah, I guess it was this dwarf star that's a brown dwarf. It's, it just means it's cooler. Mm-hmm. It's cooler in temperature and it doesn't have the mass in it to have, uh, you know, as hot of a fire going. I guess there's a lot of stars like that out there. But it was kind of interesting now. Yeah, hearing that it's like smaller and then all of the planets are a lot closer to it. Right. Because like yeah. that, that I guess it's cooler so yeah, it can be. Right, yeah. What was it like Mercury's orbit? It was something like that. Everything's kind of within oh, Mercury's right orbit. If we sort of yeah, placed everything back together. Yeah. Really fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of cool. But yeah, so that exoplanet discovery was pretty cool. There's a few other things that uh, been moving around. Uh, in the morning we've had like just a couple it's been rough right like around here oh yeah with all our our clouds Uh, it's been (laughs) so rainy i think it's been more rainy this year than it's been maybe the last two years that we've been here it seems like it a little bit more snow earlier in the year a few more like yeah a lot more rain it seems like we've had like well california had a, a good bit of flooding in areas where like the last Two years or a year ago and the, and the years before that, there was oh, yeah. a severe drought, drought. <laughs> where they were out of water. Like, But now all the reservoirs are up. The dam was about to burst. Here out in the fields, there was a lot of backup water. Tons and, of flooding. Yeah. yeah, we've had, I guess, very minor flooding. It's not really in yeah. the roads or anything. But yeah, a the lot of flooding, flooding around people's houses and stuff. A lot of the, lot like the, the valley farmland yeah. around here. Yeah, I saw a lot of that. Uh, and a, yeah, a lot of heavy rain. But there's just been a lot of consistent sustained rain yeah and clouds and storms and stuff at least for at least for our efforts of doing sky watching pretty consistently for uh for the month of what february but uh but we did get away with a few nights of observation and, and and mornings where we you know we'd get up and go to the the window that looks out to the south sky and uh, i think it was just a couple mornings ago but we went out and uh it was cool noticing that we can still see jupiter up next to spica and the constellation virgo as it's getting closer over to the western horizon as sun or as the sun starts to rise which means which is really cool that we're going to see it up maybe around midnight or 11 o'clock really soon you know coming up in the evening sky oh yeah and then yeah coming up toward its position of opposition probably if it's in virgo sometime around i think may maybe sometime around then is when we'll, we'll see it coming up over the horizon um but so it's cool seeing jupiter in virgo up next to spica but what's better than that is like dropping back down you see scorpio now up past the sun in the morning sky and i could spot antares but most everything else was too dim by the time i was looking that morning and then if you go a little further back you can spot saturn which is still up it was kind of like close to the horizon line but you could see saturn now um, a little bit closer back to the constellation of sagittarius which was interesting like remember the summer when we were looking at it yeah, it's interesting seeing it move. Yeah, so this summer when we looked at it, we saw Saturn in Scorpio, 
and now with its prograde motion, it's moved back toward Sagittarius, uh, and it's like 29-year cycle. And so I think like by the summer and fall, it's going to be right up next to the galactic center, which I think is going to be kind of cool to look at through a telescope or, or to do astrophotography of, just because there's going to be so many active things. Yeah, right in that spot. Yeah, right behind it. That'd be kind of interesting. Cool looking. I don't know if it could be exposed for. <laughs> it seems like <laughs> we gotta uh, try. it would be different, but uh, but yeah, it was kind of a kind of a cool thing. Oh, that was sort of interesting. I guess we'd be in opposition sometime around July, maybe July this year. So it'll be a good summer start to keep an eye on. I think it'll be pretty fun. Yeah, um, that'll be a cool one to watch. The other cool thing I was thinking about was when, um, if we remember that Saturn's year is 29 years to do to do one revolution around the sun. I was thinking about that because I just turned 28 a few months ago and I'm coming in and you're kind of coming into the last lap, the last leg of the lap of the year 28 with Saturn now as it comes into 29. Forgive our <laughs> our heaters in the back. Um, but as we both come into like the year 29, it's interesting to think how my whole life is just one trip around the sun. Yeah. If you were on Saturn. That's so interesting to think about. That's neat that it's wrapping back around to right in the spot where it was yeah. when you were born. That would be interesting. I guess it's kind of lined up there now, roughly, yeah, roughly. for how much it's going to move over the next few months. Yeah, it seems like it's like half a constellation a year, <laughs> something <laughs> like that. So I guess it would take to do, to do 30 years of it. And then like for you, like uh, Jupiter's gone around twice in your oh, lifetime. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mercury's gone around like, I don't know. <laughs> Way too many times. I couldn't count. It was like 80 times or something like that. Well, oh, a 70 wow. day year. Who knows? <laughs> I'd be so old on Mercury. So old on Mercury, Marina. <laughs> oh, no. That's a really interesting thing to think about. Oh, especially yeah. from our, because I think about my Earth year. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, you think about that, that time that you've had. Yeah, it'd be really strange. Gosh. It'd be like the long, like longest, slowest part. But, but yeah, I thought that was kind of neat looking out to, uh, to Saturn, um, moving around to the evening sky. We were looking out, and we did another observation night just a couple days ago. Yeah, we got lucky. The sky was clear for yeah. a few. <laughs> that one was pretty satisfying. Yeah, we drove up, and we uh, we spent a little bit of time up on the uh, the side of the hill looking out to the western horizon, and we were trying to make, uh, some, well, I mean, right now it's really easy, but making some good observations of Venus. It's so bright right now. Still. Yeah, it's still so bright. It's really been really sp- cool. Watching it over, like, the last month, I think, uh, like, in January, we were commenting about it a lot as it was moving up into the negative 4.6 threshold uh, of its magnitude, which I think is sometimes the brightest that you can see it. In the month, it's moved down a bit, but it doesn't seem like really too much. It still seems like it's in the threes, at least negative yeah. threes magnitude. Yeah, there's been enough time between us actually being able to observe it that I don't know if I could notice a difference. <laughs> I, like, I feel like it seems as bright as it did. Yeah, it's when really bright. Saying, yeah, it's still, yeah, it's still so. Yeah. It's, it's super bright right now, but, but what's interesting and, and what we were looking at is that motion that it's making down to the horizon over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, it's interesting because it's moving down a lot faster than it was moving up. Way faster. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's been really strange. In fact, um, like if you, were, if you were to go out tonight, it's probably already moved a little bit since, since a few nights ago when we looked at it last. But if it's the, if it's the third right now, we were looking at it maybe the last couple of days of February, it's probably moved down a good bit by now because it's, it's going to be gone. If it's March 3rd right now, 
it'll be out of sight, like so close to the sun that we won't really be able to see it before everything's set. It'll be about March 23rd or 24th, but it's, it's going to move in the next 20 days, I guess that would, is what that would be. So we're going to see it from the position that it is now in the evening sky, and it's going to drop all the way down to the sun in the next 20 days. That's, that's so a, fast. Yeah, that's way fast. When are, how long is it going to be gone or out of our, our sight? Are we going to start seeing it in the morning? Next? Yeah, that's an interesting thing because, yeah, that's how, that's how part of the, the motion of Venus works. And it's really interesting. There's a few parts of that that I really want, want to like spend some time unpacking with you. We can do it in the future on a bunch of other podcasts too because uh, Venus has some really interesting movements to it that have been important to a lot of different cultures and stuff. I won't get into a ton of that right now, but it's cool because Venus has this uh, five-eighths ratio to the Earth, I think is what it is, that's really steady. And so the times of years that we see Venus come up and the cycle that it takes repeats at like clockwork almost. I guess it's 99 full moons to the day. Oh, wow. Yeah. So whatever that means. I don't know why that is. But I guess they said like if, uh, if the full moon and Venus showed up on the first day of the year, uh, it would be that exact way 99 full moons later. It would look the same way on that day. And it would be eight years later. I guess that's how long. 99 full moon sticks. That's interesting. Yeah. But so it has this, uh, this eight-year cycle where Venus shows up in the sky five times. So it, does, it has more years than that, of course, because it's moving faster around the sun than the Earth is. But when we see it appear in the sky, like we have in the evening sky now, what was it, since... June 1st, say something like June 1st. Like you can get like a star walk or one of the other planetarium apps where you can kind of like see the motions or like where the planets are now and then where they were like six months ago, like what we were doing the other day. You can go in and, and roll back time to like say like June 1st, June 15th. And if you look at the position of Venus against the sun on the Western horizon, you see that it's right there next to the sun, but it's probably around the first week or two that you'd be able to see Venus above the horizon in the evening sky as the sunset and so i think it's interesting because that for this time has been up since june 15th now up to our current time in march only for three more weeks till about march 24th and then it's gone back to the sun so it's like a 270 day period crazy well yeah and so that's i think like it's longer period in the evening I haven't done enough research to really find out what it's going to do in days for the next period when it shows up in the morning. But what happens next is interesting, is that after that 270-day period, it comes up at this time of year, like we saw, if we're keeping track of this 5 eighths rule, like we saw eight years ago in 2009, which I kind of remember, but I don't really remember what Venus was doing. It would be in the same position as it was eight years ago, the planet Venus. So as we look out now, we see it up against Aquarius as it's moving back down the sun when it's really close to the spring equinox or the vernal equinox, autumnal and vernal, right? What are, would you, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> what are, yeah, what are the definitions for those? For autumnal For autumnal, vernal? yeah. Autumnal is autumn for fall equinox. Right. Vernal what? is the is the spring equinox. Oh, okay. I don't 
understand what other etymology vernal has. But yeah, I think that's what it is, the vernal equinox. Okay. And so as we're coming up, so, okay, so this goes into the other thing that we were looking at. I'm trying to keep it all straight in my head. It's a long, it's a long it's way a to lot. say the movement of, of Venus, but it's so complex. It's so strange. And I think there's, there's only a handful of different motions, different tracks it takes in the sky in certain seasons. Um, oh, yeah. That was an interesting part of looking at the, because we were checking it out on the Starwalk app when yeah. we were looking at it in real life. Yeah. But we were going through time and we were watching the way that it moves. It was really interesting seeing that shape that it seems to make yeah so over a year like if we were looking at the sun I th like uh i think that shape's called an analema so and that's the uh the motion of the ecliptic so if we were to take a picture of the sun i think this is what they did a while back is and I th the book i was looking in it was like from the 1700s it was in the library of congress that someone had taken a scan of but it was one of the these early analemas that had like a bunch of kind of like a peachy folder do you remember when you were a kid, yeah. you had a peachy and it had like all these like important stats on the side? It was like a book of those things. Okay. I guess before you had computers, you know, you needed, or Google, right? Mm -hmm. You needed, But you needed like a book that had like kind of the, the, the data for all these little things. And it was like, like, like analema match, like things and, and almanacs and little different pieces that were all kind of fit together in this big book. But this analema is a shape, is a word that describes the shape of the ecliptic and the position of the sun. This is kind of a big term to unpack to, but you've seen it before. It's kind of this infinity shape or this figure eight shape that's sort of lopsided. It's heavy to one side. And what that is is like if it was at 6 p.m. and we were out on a bluff looking at the western horizon and we saw the sun there and we came out every day for the next year at 6 p.m. and we took a picture of where the sun was, saying that it, I guess, was up at the time. What you would see if you stacked all of those images together for the year, if you took them in the same spot, you would see this kind of figure eight shape of where the sun is at that time. And what that shows is the motion of the ecliptic from our position on Earth. And it all goes back to the way that the Earth tilts down toward the Tropic of Capricorn in the winter and then up toward the Tropic of Cancer in the summer, that 23 and a half degree tilt. Do you remember that? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, it's so silly. So yeah, I like, so what causes the seasons to go back and forth causes the ecliptic line, like where we see the sun to go up and down. And so like in the winter, if we relate it all back to the sun for a moment, in the winter, as the sun's low on the horizon, we get less light, it's cold for us. In the summer, it's high on the horizon. We get a lot of light. It's hot for us. This also affects the position of the planets and the signs in the zodiac, I suppose, uh, as the ecliptic moves through the night and through the season. So what we look at when we look out or when we look at this analema is a representation of the movement of the ecliptic through the year as it moves up toward the winter solstice then down toward the vernal equinox, then to the summer solstice, then to the autumnal equinox, and then back again to the same position it started at. That's really interesting. I hadn't, it was cool seeing it on, or just on the little app, because I didn't. Yeah, it was cool. It's cool being able to visualize it. It was in a way more easier. Real way. <laughs> yeah. Imagine how many years it would take if you just had a look at this stuff for the first time. I don't know how you'd figure it out. <laughs> I don't know how they did it. 
I don't know how they did it at all either. But uh, but what I'd recommend is anyone listening to me listening to this and hearing me trying to explain this, just go you you know look at it. You'll probably remember it, seeing it a ton of times. You know more about it than I do already. Uh, but yeah, the the analema is kind of a, a cool figure. But that sort of describes what's happening with Venus and why it's moving so quickly down toward the horizon and the sun right now. And so if we think about the the time of the year when the length of our day changes the most, it's when we're closest to the equinoxes. So for us in the Northern Hemisphere, right now what we're experiencing, our day is getting longer, faster than it had before because we're getting closer to the equinox. And then it's gonna slow down, it's gonna come to a standstill when we get closer to the solstice. Kinda of interesting. And so that's, oh, I'm sorry. That's, that's why we see the, the warp in the shape of the figure eight? Yeah, that's why, um, yeah, we see like, I, well, I think uh, the warp in the shape might be because we're higher up on the northern hemisphere. I'd wonder what it would be if we took, it, took observations of it right at the equator, oh, if it'd be yeah. even. But we'd probably still see it wobble to some amount. I wasn't really sure about that. Um, but we do see uh, the, that it is not like an equal shape. Mm -hmm. But it seems to be kind of stretched out. And so, yeah, that's what we do see in the shape is that it, it transits much more distance. Uh, if we were to look at the, the image of the analema, this, this figure eight shape, it transits a lot more distance uh, on the straightaways as it would be. And then mm -hmm. kind of like a car on a racetrack has to like uh, move more slowly as it, as it makes the turn <laughs> and then come back around. So uh, as we come to the standstill at the solstice, it's at its slowest change of day rate. But when we come into the equinox, I think it's at its fastest change of day right uh that's why i think it's getting so much brighter so quickly right now oh i but i want to look that up again because i think i've been told the opposite of that once before too not to change the subject though so uh, as the day is getting progressively brighter right now that's because we're making more motion on the ecliptic so what we're seeing is the ecliptic rise out of the southern sky or uh, you know out of the the south side of the sky from our perspective in the Northern Hemisphere, it's rising up further to the north and further up toward uh, an endpoint like due west and due east, which I think would be essentially what an equinox is. Yeah, when it gets to the, is it like when the, the sun gets to its furthest west well, point? Uh, yeah, like, I guess, yeah, it's most like due west or point, most due center west. point, because like yeah. there's the, the north point in the summertime for June, when it comes up super in the early in the morning and sets super late in the evening, it's coming up at its furthest north point. But here at the equinox, it's going to be about at the equal point it would be in the fall as it's coming back up from the south. So it'd be kind of that center point between the two, and that's what uh -huh. we make east-west. And then we have like our furthest south rise for us in the northern hemisphere, like December 21st. And that's like uh, the furthest south point. So, um, so yeah, I guess uh, as we're moving back into the equinox right now, things are moving a lot faster for us each day. And that's causing like Venus to move a lot closer to the sun as the sun's moving up from the horizon as our day is getting longer. Does that kind of make sense? Like if you were to think about the length of our day as it seems to be getting a lot brighter, a lot faster. Mm-hmm then when the night sky happens is going to happen a little later or what's a visible in the night sky is going to be kind of affected by right, the sun being up. 
Yeah, because there's still light in the sky. And I think that's sort of affecting what we're seeing with uh, with Venus as it moves down so quickly. But to get to your original question, I think it was how many days is it going to be gone behind the sun before we see it? Oh, yeah, yeah. How and long then, will Venus be gone? Yeah, it's interesting. So what I've all just explained is to get to the point of... <laughs> To get to the point of that, when we're next to the equinox, when we're moving quickly, it happens out that Venus will move past the sun and out into the morning sky much more quickly than it will if we were close to a solstice and the same oh. motion was happening. So all that <laughs> long preamble was to explain uh, that point, if it's helpful at all. Uh, and so it's kind of interesting that, yeah, Venus will, I think, dip too close to the sun to see at around March 24th, it'll be gone for just a few days. And then I think you'll probably be able to see it again in the morning sky by around April 5th, maybe maybe even earlier than that. It depends, I guess, on how accurate you can be. Okay. But I think, yeah, soon after that, it will be popped up onto the other side of the sun and in the morning sky. Does that count as a second time in its... Uh... And it's like five-eighths rule. Yeah. Is that like the second time yeah. that we've seen it now? So we're seeing time, if we're counting for this, year. this one. Or for this, yeah, it's difficult yeah. to describe, I guess. Yeah, so if, if from our perspective, we're saying this is number one that mm -hmm. we're going to wait to see happen again, then what we're going to see is the end of number one happening and the beginning of number two happening Okay. right after that. And so we're going to see it's one motion in the morning sky, or yeah, in the morning sky now. As it comes up and then and then comes back down to the horizon, and then we're going to see it throw again into the night. Yeah, into the or evening into the sky. Morning. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch it go back and forth. But we'll keep up with it a little bit more. But yeah, so right now it's just going to be a few days that it's behind the sun, and then back up in the morning. I think we're going to get to see Mercury too. Oh, cool! Another subject. Uh, but if if uh, like maybe what we'll get to observe also is um, is as Venus comes up in the morning and then goes back down to the horizon again it's going to be maybe nine months from now which might be close to the winter so we might be able to get uh have a chance to describe the motion of it near a solstice like what we were just talking about i've heard it can be up to like five weeks that it's not visible like that oh. is behind the sun because the solstice is so much slower it's everything's oh, at such yeah, a greater yeah. standstill at that time i don't know really <laughs> kind that's of interesting stuff. yeah so what is there's kind of like a, an amount of days that it'll be gone between. Yeah. It's so like it's going to be at least so many days that it's gone, but not more than this many days yeah. that it's out of our there's a, site. There's a few different variables that I'm not 100% sure on, but it seemed like the maximum was sometime around five weeks. It was like 40 days or something like that. Wow. Uh, and then the shortest is like four or five days. Oh, wow. And that's probably closer what we're going to have this time i think so yeah uh and i know there's a few eccentricities of of a few of a few things that could mm -hmm. be going on but i think generally yeah this is going to be a quick one as it as it rips right by and that's then it's back cool. up. yeah i want to i want to make sure we get to see it yeah happen. yeah we should talk a little bit more about it as it, as it comes up because i know there's a few other uh, myths attached to this motion that we're talking about right now and i wanted to get into to that but i don't yeah. i don't know if i have <laughs> i don't have enough research for it but <laughs> a lot of the old sumerian stuff has has a lot of stuff tied into venus and this motion we're talking about and a lot of old mayan hist or anthropology has a lot of information tied to venus too which i think both of those have some cool facts to kind of 
go over and I think it would be about. really cool. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of really interesting anthropological parts about it. Yeah. I was starting to read, or I'd gotten into the, the part in the book uh, that we're reading through where it's talking more about the Mayans. And oh, yeah. Is that stuff doing, interesting? Yeah, it is. I think it would be really cool to, yeah. to talk about more as we... Yeah, we should break that down, look at it, and we should definitely come back. Like in the next week or two, like as we're watching yeah, this as progression happening. of Venus. Yeah, we should talk about that stuff a lot. I think that'd be really cool. I think it'd be so cool, Marina. But yeah, thanks a lot for doing this podcast with me. Yeah, thanks for doing an episode. <laughs> Talking about some uh, some Venus observations that we were making. Yeah, it's cool seeing it. It is. Re- I'm it, really yeah. glad we had that clear night. A oh, few nights yeah, ago. I know. It's so frustrating. It's annoying. <laughs> yeah, it's annoying uh, going. I just going see all the cool nights. Oh yeah, it was cool seeing like uh, just Orion and the other constellations oh, yeah. and stuff that are coming in to this. Yeah, comparing this that season. to Mars. Yeah, that was cool. Seeing how red they were. Was was more red? Yeah. Is that more red? Hmm. But it was, so yeah, red. really cool. I like that stuff a lot. So, yeah, I'm really I'm looking forward to March. And uh, now at least hopefully it gives us a break. And at least April and May when we get back to having some nice observation nights. But we're going to take advantage of it so much this year. Yeah, we are. It's going to be great. So, yeah, guys, thanks a lot for listening to, uh, to us do a little podcast about some space stuff. I appreciate it, Marina. Thanks for doing this podcast. With me. Thanks, Billy. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thank you guys very much. <laughs> So on behalf of Marina Hansen, my name is Billy Newman, and thank you guys very much for listening to this episode of the Night Sky Podcast. <laughs>